Georgia Dow is a therapist, but she's not your therapist. This show should not substitute a personal consultation with a professional. Too. Okay. Yes. I, I, okay. Need some, I need some marriage advice from the expert. Okay. I am probably the worst possible person to ask, but go uh, right ahead. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So, when do you ever play competitive games against Maureen? Um, only in Hearthstone <laughs> when they only give. Only in Hearthstone. Okay. When, okay. Because they give. And the only reason that I even do it there, because it's against my better judgment, is because yeah. every so often they give you a quest where you have to play a friend. And if you do it, both of you get 80 gold, win or lose. So that's the only reason that I do it. And I generally pick a terrible deck to try to lose. Well, my 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 psychological motivation is a little different. It's uh, crushing my husband. And I find that I'm a little bit torn a little bit because, you know, so I was sitting at home tonight and I go, hey, Frank, we play a game of Street Fire with me. And he's like, oh, OK, yeah, um, but you always win. And then I was like, that I beat him. And I'm like, well, we got seven games to go. He's like, what? I'm like, I asked if you would play eight games of Street Fighter with me. <laughs> and then like, you keep playing. So they get, it, like, the thing with Frank is he's very nice, but it doesn't matter how many times I explain, like, Hadouken and stuff. And, like, he just gets destroyed. <laughs> and it's such a psychological battle to, like, let him feel like he could win, so let him get close, but don't oh, push him over horrible. the edge where he will quit. And it's so difficult. Do you have any pro tips about that? I, I don't know. See, this is the thing is that I try, like, yeah. I have decks that I just play because they're funny and they don't, they're not actually good. And those are yeah. usually the ones that I will pull out when I play against Maureen. And, and inevitably, they work as designed, which they only are supposed to do about like 20% of the time. But it inevitably yeah. happens that the cards fall in exactly the right order. And, and I have to play them like I'm not a monster. So, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a monster. So, and then, but luckily it's only one game. So then it's over in like about two minutes. And then she scowls at me and I apologize. And then we go on with our day. So, yeah, but maybe, yeah. maybe try playing. I don't know who's terrible in Street Fighter because I haven't really played Street Fighter. But, um, I mean, I know that Ken is just awful in general. Like, not necessarily as a character, Ken. just like a, like as a person, as like a person, right? Isn't he terrible as uh, like a person? <laughs> no, he's one of the easiest characters to play in Street Oh, no, Fighter. I'm not talking about like as, like as a character. I'm talking about like a personality. He's pretty terrible, right? Isn't well, he? Well, Dan. Dan, oh, Dan is the most sexist character in Street Fighter. So he would be really terrible. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. you just kind of play him, and then you'll be so distracted by the fact that you're playing this awful character that you'll play less. You'll play less well, and then Frank yeah. will kind of catch up to you. Yeah. What about you, Georgia? <laughs> do you do you do you do this with your spouse? Like, you have to have some competitive game that you play with Anthony. Yeah, I play a lot of competitive games with Anthony. Unfortunately, like I win at all the puzzle games, and he wins yeah. at all the fighting games. So this makes for, and I don't like to lose. Um, and so this this often ends poorly for us. 
Shane hates. We we'll play uh, Mario Kart uh, together a lot. That's like one of our favorite uh, in terms of video games to play. And he does not like losing. And I I've beat him so many times on Mario Kart, and I just you know I can't help but uh, tease him and rib him about it. And he just gets so upset, which is great. But one of the games like I advise people never to ever 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 play Uno with me because there is something about that game that turns me into a monster <laughs> that card game just makes me the most evil human evil. to exist oh my god yes i can I just imagine you dropping a drop a draw four and both middle fingers coming out as if as the card hits the table <laughs> yeah and if anyone else does like i'll tackle them over the table i just there's something i don't know why but that game just brings out the worst part of me so i i try not to play uno with new friends only friends i've had for a long time or family and even with family it's like oh are you sure you want to play that micah <laughs> So, Georgia, do you think it's like, is it like, is it a healthy marriage dynamic to, you know, beat your husband a lot at a Street Fighter Five, and then when he's angry to just say LTP noob? Like, is that, is that... Get good, is Frank. That, is that good? <laughs> like, is that, is that constructive marriage stuff? Because I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that as long as he has the ego to handle it, I think that's a healthy marriage no, strategy. He, he doesn't, he oh, doesn't, he doesn't at all. No, no. I, I, in all seriousness, have you tried just like coaching him rather than like playing against him? Because one of the things that Maureen and I will do is she'll go on ranked and I'll just like, she'll run her plays by me and then I'll give her suggestions. And then we're both playing on the same team. Team, you know, and then yeah, she's yeah. getting better, and we're both we're not like wanting to claw each other's eyes out at the end of it, which is also a bonus. I, I've tried it. It's like, okay, Frank, here's the here's the V trigger move. You've got to learn this. Okay, this is Adukin. This is a very key thing uh, to use a super. You you press this button here, and then invariably it just turns into like, like his whole body is shaking as he's trying to play because he's button mashing, and it's like. I don't know. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I've yeah. we've talked about this. Like, there's a physical part to fighting games, too, that if you just can't get it, because I can't get it either, you just can't get it. And then you're just doomed to be, like, crouching in the corner, hoping that you can, like, block, you can block in the microsecond that the foot's about to hit your head, which is kind of a metaphor for life, really, if you think about it. <laughs> So speaking of games, we should, we should, we should. Was there any game news this week? I don't know if there was anything (laughs) important that happened that we really need to talk about. Uh, well, let's switch over and talk about it. Um, but, oh, um, sh- oh, 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 that yeah, was, yeah, 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 no. yeah. that almost that, got by that almost, no, you know, no, my mouth was agape. I couldn't oh, even that speak. What was going on. That was okay. what was going on. I, I flipped the switch on your, oh, on God. your uh, upset oh, factor. Don't oh, do my God. It. No, no, I, I, I do not approve of this line, Micah. This is this, that was very definitely a misplay and I will not stand for it. Uh, so, so if you haven't heard, and you haven't heard me joking ridiculously about this just now. Uh, Nintendo has finally released its NX console, and it is called the Nintendo Switch. Called so because it switches between uh, several different devices. It works as a you know a full screen uh, television console. It works as a little uh, take it with you device, a little mobile console that is reminiscent of the Wii U's gamepad, and there can also serve 
serve as its own little TV with people playing each of the individual uh, the controllers that are connected to it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the Nintendo Switch is here, uh, and lots of people have been giving their hot takes on it, so I suppose it's time for Disruption to give their hot takes on this device. I love it. I love it. I am going to camp outside of a Toys R Us. I will put on a ski mask and hold up a Toys R Us <laughs> van if I have to. <laughs> I want I want the system. And, you know, like the, the N64, I didn't get that until a year and a half out after it was out. GameCube, I didn't get until a year and a half after it was out. You know, Wii, I didn't get until it had been out for three years. You know, Wii U, I didn't get until it was well after a year out. Like, I'm not somebody that runs to buy consoles. And this just looks amazing. I mean, it looks amazing for so many reasons. A, Nintendo is finally bringing something that really looks like an A-level hardware game to the market. Because the, the Wii U is a clunky, hoopty, POS, <laughs> like, terrible. Like, I'm sorry, the screen on it is, like, washed out, like, um, you know, like a, a television set from the 30s yeah, or whatever. it's terrible. And it's, it's, it's terrible. And, you know, this is thin and it's sexy. And there are a lot of details to be worked out, like how it's going to handle, um, you know, like we know it's got a Tegra processor inside of it. So, you know, are you going to have to rebuy all these gorgeous Wii U games that they're showing? Um, is there going to be any kind of like, how are they going to handle Wi-Fi when you're in mobile mode? Like there are a lot of questions out there. But as far as a concept itself, as far as a concept you know, I think we'd all agree that mobile games have kind of reached a point where they failed. I, I don't have any more passion. I, I rarely check the app store for games because it's just been IAP'd to death. It's, it's so rare that the game comes out that you care about. Then on the other side of it, you've got like the, you know, the, the PlayStation Vita, which is, I'm sorry, like the games on there are, unstomachable in some ways like there's a game that's come out and i'm this close to like writing like just a, a feminist horror story about it because it's all about these hyper sexualized underage girls that you know sony is just fine with um you know like putting and promoting in their store um you know that's not something for the masses and i think this so neatly intersects um, this need of this social portable gaming experience that's accessible to everybody, but it's not it's not going to be loaded with that IAP. It's going to have that Nintendo magic, and it's not, you know, it's not going to be hardcore. I think it's just a genius concept. How do you all feel? I was expecting the worst going into it, as what? I as I normal before I before I saw the video. <laughs> Surprise! Because, because I've been let down by Nintendo so many times before, and I think that <laughs> I'm still. Uh, skeptical about if they can do all the things that you need to do for a console to make this work. But as a concept, it shows that they're finally starting to get it. They they can't compete with the PS4 and the Xbox on their own terms. They just can't. They're they're not in the same league. They, it's not their mission. It's not, yeah. and, it, and it shouldn't be their mission. And they've always embraced this, what they call a blue ocean strategy, which is finding a market that's being underserved and serve that. That, that was very casual gamers with the Wii, and that dried up with mobile, and because they're being served very well. It's not hardcore gamers, we know that. What they're trying to serve is they're trying to serve people who are their fans. Like, if you look at the video, there's not a kid in sight. They're not appealing to kids. They're appealing to uh, people who have grown up mm. with Nintendo and still want to engage with Nintendo and still want to play those games, but maybe they don't want to be tethered to a television 
24-7. And that's a really smart idea. Like, the best feature out of the Wii U, and I, I, I want to take a second to do a Mike Was Right humble brag, because I wrote about this on my blog like a year and a half ago before we knew about any of the rumors, and, and I think I got it pretty close. But the, the idea is that the best feature of the Wii U was the off-screen play. Bar none. As bad as that screen was, that feature was a game changer. And it was one of the things that made the Wii U most appealing to me because, like, I didn't have to take over a television or fight with a television with my family to be able to grind grind in, in Zelda or whatever. And this will let you do that and go the next step further, which is that it just lets you take it. You throw it in your bag and you take it with you. And if you're on a plane, you play it. And if even and they've designed it even in a way that if you have multiple people around and you have like half an hour to kill, they can all play a game together. I, I don't know how those controllers that undock from the screen work how well they work. They look very uncomfortable, but the fact that you could do it at all and they're thinking about that is really, really something that's not being served by any of the other players in the space right now. Yeah. Very well said, especially like I will totally give you credit for that. Uh, the, the Steve was right moment. Uh, you, you called it and I think you're, I think you're dead on. I remember telling you it was a bad idea, Steve. So I have to give you a, I have to give you a, Steve was really right. Everyone was very wrong, but I never thought Nintendo would deliver this level of quality because I mean, let's, let's get geeky here for a second. Okay. Um, you know, the Wii U is a power PC architecture, right? Um, you know, the, I forget what 3DS is. It's some kind of mobile architecture. Yeah. It's, it's not something weird. Yeah. With any of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, a Tegra a Tegra architecture, right? Yeah. So it's it's very surprising to me. Yeah, you know, we don't know anything about specs or anything at this point, but there's a lot of concerns to come through here. Like my friend Laura Kate Dale was hypoth um she was thinking today that uh you know maybe the game would switch between ten eighty P and seven twenty P on the fly if it was in the dock or out to save battery power. And it's like, no, you'd have to have two sets of interfaces for everything or by cubic scale everything down. Like there there are all these things we don't know about it. But we do know that this mobile architecture choice is going to make it completely unable to play any uh, you know, 3DS games unless it's going through a translation wrapper or there's some emulator built into the board and it's pretty thin hardware and it's going to be battery constrained. Um, or the same thing for Wii U games. So this is a big gamble, but I am really willing to gamble that the way most people interact with games today is when they're on the couch and there are people around and you're watching a movie and you want to game or grind in the background. I just, I think it's a really bold step for Nintendo that frankly, I never thought they'd have the guts to make. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think that the one thing that we don't know is what the operating system is, but if, if it's like, cause the Nvidia shield is another con mini console that is like, uh, like a step up from the Apple TV, basically, that runs Android and plays and plays Android games on a television. And it, you, that sounds like, okay, well, you're getting mobile games. Like, you're getting games that are not necessarily current gen, but like Xbox 360, PS3 level. Like, Portal runs on it, Half-Life runs on it, Borderlands 2 runs on it. it, it you, can, you can port decent games to it. And a lot of the the games that they're getting right now are indie games that are getting ported over from other systems. If it is running Android, 
that would be something that would make it a lot easier for those developers, especially indie devs, to be able, hopefully, I mean, Bree, you would know about this a little bit more than I would. I, don't, I know you don't code in Android, but you know that space really no, well. No, I do. I do, um, actually. But yeah. I, I would imagine that it's obviously it's not pressing a button, but it's a lot more work than rewriting the entire engine to be able to run on a PowerPC architecture. I, I think you're right. Hypothetically, that could be true. Um, but I think that the chances of that are very low. And I think if you look at if you look at who has synergy, like with Nintendo products, um, you know, the things are in the Android app store, in the uh, Google Play store, rather. Like it's as anathema to Nintendo as you can get. Like it's like give away your privacy and it's like loaded with IAP. I just don't see a lot of those games really making the transition really well over there. Um, so I, I guess it's possible. I don't think there's really a lot for Nintendo to win with that. It's also worth noting we've seen Nintendo start to make moves to get cozier with Apple. So I think a really big play uh, working on Android is I, I, I just don't buy it. Like there are a lot of people that think they're going to be able to plug in their Wii U games and it's magically going to show up and detect the CD. I'm like, that's yeah, a no nice way. dream no. to have. Um, yeah, but I mean, Georgia, you've been quiet. I realize like you'd have to strap this into your face because you're no longer interested <laughs> in meat space experiences. Um, like, are uh, you... Because I will do that. I will duct tape this to your face if it will get you to play Splatoon with me. Oh, um, I, I, you know what? I think that this was a brilliant idea if they had actually come out with it three years ago. I think that... Oh, oh. Yeah, what? I'm sorry. Oh, that harsh, Georgia that hot take. Hot take. <laughs> Holy salty Georgia. Good grief. Um, I just... I I think that its uh, use case is small now, like right, like it's not going to be able to beat out if you want to play on a console. And for portability, most people are going to be using their phones. And for people without phones, their kids, this is expensive. And I don't see people running around with it, hooking it in to play on the TV versus using a console if you're actually a gamer. So this is not for the heavy duty gamer. This is for more casual and more casual. They already have their phone for cruddy games that they can play on top that some games are good that you can play on your phone. I, I think it's a, it's a really interesting idea. I do not see where it's going to gain traction because I think that it would lose against your mobile. And I think that it loses against consoles and portability we already have. So people that really want portable gaming would be the only people that this would really answer to. People that want a portable game that's a really good game and then they have to have the money to do it and it's not going to be for kids. I don't know. I don't see this gaining a ton of traction, which is sad. I like I like the idea. I think it's really versatile. I like it. It's thinking outside of the box. I love the little controllers slip out and you can kind of make it get like it does a lot of things, but none of them exceptionally well. Well, Harsh. can we really can we oh. say that it does <laughs> none of them exceptionally well before before the console's actually out yet? Okay, I'm no fan of that new Zelda game because I really don't want to play Skyrim in a Zelda game. But have you seen right. the the footage from the new Zelda game? That is not a mobile game as we know mobile games. I mean, not that you can. I mean, you, they have full MOBAs on. On a phone, I play Vainglory a decent amount now. Every so often, and it's a full mobile on a on a phone. But Ugh. but Ugh. I, I I like it. It feels it fills a yeah. But it's not going to be. It's not going to. It's not going to beat a console. Like if you're actually wanting to really game, you're going to want a game on like 
on an actual console, it's not it's not going to be able to to go up against it. Which it is, though. I mean, you plug it into the television. It's it looks. I mean, from the from the the video, it looks like it's the same as playing the Wii U. Yeah, but I don't see people buying this instead of buying an Xbox or PlayStation or you know PlayStation VR. Like, oh, I, I do. Just don't see that. I yeah, I do too. You know, historically, Nintendo made a really interesting, um, a really interesting choice. Uh, you know, this is about nineteen, yeah, nineteen ninety one or so. You can read about this in Console Wars, but they, you know, at the time where Sega games were getting more and more bloody, Nintendo made a very deliberate decision that they were going to be the game company that captured childhood and nostalgia. And they they looked at Disney and they studied Disney and they did exactly what Disney did. And that's why they were so slow to bring out games like Mortal Kombat um, to compete. So I think that when you're talking about a Nintendo product, you are talking about a system, like a, a group of intellectual properties that are fundamentally um, associated with gaming in many people's minds. Um, you know, Dan Benjamin, he has never struck me as a hardcore gamer, but I'll never forget him talking one time and saying, like, well, you know, if you have a video game system, you got to get Mario. That's all that matters. Yeah. It's not true, but <laughs> I do think there are a lot of people that think that way. So I think that, you know, I'm a gamer that's very comfortable with, like, I just today I'm reading up hardcore techniques for Gears of War four and like which metals to get to like you know run up my horde level faster so I can use more cards. I'm somebody that's comfortable with that, but there's an entire class of people that do just want to explore in in Zelda a more casual experience, want to explore in Mario. And I think that this is a really nice bridge between this you know kind of you know mobile crap. Um, and you know, frankly, this this series of really hardcore games that are out there for you know Sony and PlayStation, I do believe there's a market for that. Well, I think that there's people, but do you think that there's going to be enough to be able to support buying a system and to make it able to to stay above water versus all of the new things that are out right now? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I do. do too. I, I mean, I think that there's there is a use case for people around like. Uh, my I'll say my age who grew up with gaming and want to play games that are larger like they used to. But there's not it's it's almost impossible when you're a, an adult with a full time job to be able to tether yourself to a television and to, and sit in front of a television for 30, 40, 50 hours to be able to play something like a Fallout 4. Not that I'm saying that Fallout 4 is going to come to this, but games like that, you know, like open world games, games that have a lot of meat that you're paying $60 because you're one of these people that wants to get their $60 worth of video games, even though that's not really a thing. So I think that the idea that let's say that you have a commute on a train, right, that you can get on the train, sit on the train for half an hour and play a half an hour of Zelda and then put it back in your bag and then take it home with you. I think that's compelling to more than a small amount of people. And I think that it's important that the the console has an actual message. I think the problem with the Wii U was first, I mean, first of all, the name was terrible and it confused a lot of people. But I think also the message was very confused. They never really had a clear point of view as far as what it was supposed to do. 
And this is very clearly, you can see from that video, they have a point of view and they can deliver on it, which is that you can play the same game on your television and you can take it with you if you have to go somewhere. I think to your point, Bree, about being able to take advantage of the hardware, this something like that feels like it's more baked into the hardware. Like it's not something that a third party dev would need to do something extra to take advantage of a second screen that would keep them from porting over a game that was successful on another platform. It's something that's part of the system and it's it's something that's inherent to the system and you don't have to do anything extra to take advantage of it. And I think that that's something that that will speak to a greater number of people than the Wii U. And if we've seen anything from Pokemon Go, it's that Nintendo's brands are more important to them than anything else. And they appeal to a large group of people who want to play those games again in any form. I think that's so well said, Steve. The Pokemon, though, argument, it's... It's, but we're playing it on devices that we already have. Right. So I agree. I think that, like, and I love, I love Nintendo and I love Nintendo games, but we already have our phones and they're portable and we can play them on our TV if we would like to. And they go in our pocket and we don't have to purchase another system to do that. And that's one of the reasons that Pokemon Go became so successful. And I think that that's not going to be as salient when people have to purchase another system for that portability that they already have in their I, I I don't agree with that. I think it's, uh, I think, it, yeah, it's not going to expand that way. But imagine this, like Pokemon Go got, I mean, it's like the drug dealer strategy, right? <laughs> yeah, like you get yeah, people yeah. people hooked uh, on Pokemon and Mario Run is the exact same thing. Um, Steve, tell me if this sounds plausible to you. Okay. I know that like me, you don't like talking to people in person. I hate it. I hate it. Don't. So imagine like the next time you and I want to go talk about disruption and we go to that burger place and get lunch. Like imagine both of us having, we use it in our bag, or I'm sorry, the Nintendo Switch in our bag and saying like, hey, let's check out the new Splatoon game. And like sitting there and eating a burger and like killing people in Splatoon. Absolutely. Like an entire, or Smash game, Super Smash. And I think that, I, I think like we're looking at the same pattern and coming to different conclusions, George. I think you're looking at at Pokemon Go, and you're saying people aren't going to buy another device for that. I'm looking at Pokemon Go, and I'm saying people are interested in these experiences if there's a social component to it. And the problem with, like, Smash is it doesn't really work on the 3DS. So, like, give me a premium system that can carry on play that, can, like, challenge people with, can, like, play in professional ways. I think that is a really exciting direction. And that you're not embarrassed as an adult to take out in public and be playing Absolutely. in front of you. Like, I, I am yeah. fully okay with having my Vita out in public because it looks like a piece of consumer electronics. This does definitely address this. Like, it's something that you could imagine yourself playing in public and not being embarrassed. Whereas with the 3DS, even the best-looking 3DSs, it's really hard to say, like, this is, like, it's hard for it to say anything than other than, Either I'm a man child or I am a total geek and I'm comfortable with being a total geek, which, which again is nothing's wrong with that, but there's not every setting that you can necessarily feel comfortable with that. I, yeah. I think that the, mm-hmm. them actually getting industrial design right is, is important. Like, again, uh, pricing is going to be a big part of this. Like, if this is, and they said they're not going to sell this at a loss, I would be shocked if they sell this for less than $300. And that could be a problem because that's a lot of money. But again, people are also spending four to $500 on a PlayStation VR with, with only a few games that, you know, is like the opposite of this. This is like the opposite of, v, of the VR headsets now. 
where that's something that is taking you into an, like an isolated world where it's just you. And this is actually encouraging you to go out and, and take it out into the world and play with friends. It's, it's actually really interesting, an interesting reaction to it if you think about it that way. I, I, what I saw graphically as like an expert in this, I saw nothing graphically that looked anything different than what I saw on the Wii U. So I don't expect this to be any more powerful than the Wii U, or if it is just marginally enough to throw things in a translation wrapper. Um, and I think that's great. Yeah. Because if you're looking at the cost of the, you know, the screen, we know for a breakdown that I would imagine it costs like $60, $70. You know, the plastic, the hardware, the chip, the battery, I can see them putting this together for $200 because it's not going to have cutting edge components inside of it. Yeah, I think that's good. I, and again, I'm sorry, like, I love graphical fidelity. You know, I love more power. But I think if you look at the Wii U, I do believe that that is, it's almost a zenith of where Nintendo really needs to go. And I think much above that, at least for now, is just not worth it. Like they've got this, these really high quality rigs with Mario, a lot of very natural motion, beautiful colors, gorgeous lighting. You know, Nintendo games are not about 60 frame per second, like particle effects as you're murking somebody with hard light in Destiny. It's just, <laughs> it's just not what it's yeah. about. So I do think that they're going to be able to save a lot on, you know, the, the guts of the machine and they'll do fine. I think it'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, nobody's ever said that Splatoon doesn't look great, right? I mean, it it, great. Yeah. It, it's it's not, you know, it's not like, you know, the top of the line, you know, Halo 5 or Gears of War 4, but it's, it's fine, you know, it's appropriate, it's an appropriate level of graphic fidelity for what it is. And I, I wouldn't expect that to change too much. Like, I... I'm actually more excited for it than that I was when we started this conversation, to be honest with you. And there are still some things that Nintendo needs to do to prove that they understand how to make a modern console. But I think that this is a really promising start. Um, I, I've been here before with them. And so because uh, I have bought I did buy the GameCube at launch. I did buy the the Wii at launch. I didn't I didn't buy the Wii U quite at launch, but I bought it probably earlier than I should have. And I'll tell you, the the year after the GameCube launch and the year after the um, after the Wii launch were really, really rough. There was barely any yeah. content. Yeah. So yeah. And, and I there were a lot of times like I ended up buying an Xbox about a year after I bought the Wii just because I was so disappointed in in what was left there. So. They have a lot to prove, but I think they're on a really good track, and I'm way more optimistic about their chances of being able to carry forward into the next generation than I was before this morning. I agree. I agree. And, yeah, Steve, you and I will go uh, camp out at a Toys R Us in Framingham. In yeah. Georgia, you're not invited. This negativity. I, I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. I'll be All okay. Right. If, right. if, be if okay. It, and, and hopefully it will prove me wrong. Um, right. And it won't go the way of the Wii U. Yeah. Oh, God. The way well, of the Wii yeah. U. <laughs> so, Micah, did we get your opinion on this before we before we wrap up and move on? Do you want to give your opinion on this, or are you afraid after yeah. what we told, what we did uh, to Georgia? <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm not, I'm not mostly afraid. Um, 
So for me, as uh, as everyone knows, all the listeners know, they're like, who is that person again? Because he doesn't like games. Um, this doesn't excite me uh, the, in the way that the first Wii excited me and the way that like the GameCube excited me and how much I love, even though it's terrible, uh, but it's so wonderful. The Dreamcast, like all of these, I, I know that that's, that's a whole different thing, but still those. No, those Dreamcast is the consoles. best system of all time, so that's okay. Keep going. Yeah, you know, these consoles really excited me. This one doesn't, and I think the reason why is because uh, because of the fact mostly that, A, I'm not a big gamer, and B, I'm also not really, even the games that I do play, I'm not really a mobile gamer. Um, and so, you know, like my phone does not have a single game on it. And so the, the whole idea of like taking this thing wherever it goes, it's a cool idea in theory and probably for some people, for me, not so much because that doesn't pertain to me. So every time I see them like switching out all these different pieces and swapping in different pieces, all I can think is that looks like a lot of work. And also a lot of cognitive load devoted to remembering where all the different pieces are. And I know how I am when it comes to that kind of stuff. And I would have to have like this special chest where each little piece fits in whenever it's not in use and they all better be there and perfectly aligned and no one touching them while they're not in use. So, uh, that, you know, those, those things don't really excite me about this. Uh, but that said, that's just like, that's a personal opinion. I don't, I don't foresee like with any knowledge that I have of how well these things do, I can't, you know, judge that it's going to be a flop or a huge success because I don't know personally. Uh, and personally, I think that, uh, it's just not a, it's not a console that super excites me. Now, if my partner or some, some friends were like, you have to get this thing, uh, if they're all saying that after they've purchased it, then maybe I'll get it, you know, four months after or something like that. Uh, and the fact that the controller kind of looks like a puppy's head whenever <laughs> it's in that certain form, that, is just, true. that almost is. sells me on it, you know, but, uh, that's, that's, that's how I feel about it. It's, it's interesting. And I love to see Nintendo go to continue to double down on like it's it's quirky weirdness while also kind of falling in line with the the mainstream consoles at least in kind of trying to bump up their their uh quality for all of that stuff that's super cool so good job nintendo and i hope that this is a success for them but uh right now it looks like too much work for me and it's not something that i will be going out on day one to get but one thing I will be going out on day one to get is Linode, because this episode is brought to you by our dear friends at Linode, which again, say it with me, Linode, not Linode. Linode, <laughs> Linode is a we're all doing that together. You know what, Georgia? I appreciate your team effort there. That was really great of you. Uh, Linode is a combination of high-performance SSD Linux servers spread across eight eight data centers around the world, which makes Linode a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. You can get a server up and running in under a minute with plans starting at just 10 bucks a month, which now gets you two gigabytes of RAM. And I'm telling you right now, folks, when they say you can get a server up and running in under a minute, that's not any sort of, it's not a lie. There's no lie to it. There's no uh, hyperbole to it. You really can. Super cool. You'll be able to choose your resources, your Linux distro and node location right from the manager tool. And once you're up and running, you can easily deploy, boot and resize your virtual server with just a few clicks. Now listen to this. You probably want to know what the heck you can use Linode for. Well, it's great for 
tasks like running a private Git server, hosting large databases, you know, all those, uh, all those, those nefarious things you know about Georgia Dow, running a mail server, op- a very secure mail server, operating powerful applications, and so much more. With industry-leading native SSD storage and access to a 40 gigabit network, you're going to have all the power you need to get your tasks done. So here's what you're going to do. As a listener of this show, you go and sign up at linode.com slash disruption. You're not only going to be supporting us, but you're also going to get $20 towards any Linode plan. And let me remind you that plans start at 10 bucks. You get $20, 10 bucks. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's honestly nothing to lose. So go to linode.com slash disruption to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit, or just use the promo code disruption20 at checkout. Thanks so much to Linode for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Alrighty, it is time to move on to talk about uh, something interesting that Instagram has implemented. So some of you might know, uh, and it's something that I actually just learned, you know how they can how Twitter and Facebook oftentimes data scientists will look to those to kind of tell the mood of a population. So you can kind of uh, by you know plotting the right data, you can tell how the United States feels at any given time. Probably really sad right now, uh, based on on what they're tweeting and and certain different factors. Well, turns out Instagram is very very accurate when it comes to that. So data scientists over the years have plugged in to that and have determined that um, Instagram is a good barometer for depression and uh, just general you know, unhappiness and, and those sorts of issues. Well, knowing that and knowing too that uh, Instagram is a place where people often go and end up kind of unfortunately glorifying things like anorexia and um, extreme dieting and uh, suicide and self-harm, uh, Instagram is kind of trying to to work against those things. So, you know, first off, it's it's taking responsibility for something that it is known for, and it has introduced some some features that can help uh, help people who might need it. So, the first one is that you know, if you if you happen across a friend's post that has a, a a hashtag that might mean a certain thing, there are hashtags related to anorexia and things like that. Or you know, you just see a concerning post in general, you can actually mark that post uh, for for something that's that you might be concerned with, and the person gets a message that says someone saw one of your posts and thinks you might be going through a difficult time. If you need support, we'd like to help. And it comes up with options for like talking to a friend, contacting a helpline, or getting tips and supports that you can tips and support that you can read. And the other thing that I want to uh, touch on before we kind of break out into a conversation is if you start to search for certain terms that are known to be related to uh, these types of things. One, for example, is the the hashtag Anna, which uh, in in a certain way, it, you know, if it's written a certain way, is short for anorexia. And it's often how people who are glorifying those things uh, end up kind of talking about anorexia. And so they will let you know, hey, you know, this is, is can we can we help you with this? Because posts with words or tags that you're searching for often encourage behavior that can cause harm and even lead to death. And so they also uh, go through and offer you the different options or you can click through and see those posts anyway. So that is what Instagram is doing with uh, the, the responsibility that it has 
according to data scientists. And yeah, I mean, I saw this and I, I'm very fond of Instagram and I'm just curious, uh, especially from Georgia, uh, is, is this something that you think can end up uh, actually being a helpful thing? Or is this kind of like a, uh, that, that's great, but it's not really going to help anyone kind of feature? Is this for, for saving face or is this actually potentially helpful? Hmm. Um, it's a really, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You're exceptionally accurate in a lot of people that are dealing with very difficult situations, uh, can often go to groups, um, on Instagram and on other social media in order to find support, but then it can end up becoming, um, as an encouragement group and it doesn't help people get out. I like the idea that they are trying to do something about it because, Usually what I, I ask my clients to do is to try not to go onto Instagram and not to go onto those sites. But it's a really difficult thing because they already feel so alone. And whatever they're dealing with and the manner in which they're dealing with it, they feel like no one else understands them. And then you end up becoming a, an us or them tribalism that happens with that. And that's why more extreme behaviors become encouraged. And that can be very dangerous. Because you feel okay even when you're not okay, which is good and bad at the same time. Will it be enough to be able to help? I think that for some people it would be nice to know that someone cares. I think that in other ways, I think that it would make people feel bad and maybe upset or worried and become more careful about hiding their persona and not letting people know. So I'm not sure how much this would really help. If I went to a website and I was dealing with someone, something, and then someone, I don't want to say outed me, but kind of like called me out on it and said, Hey, are you okay? I don't know. I think that this could go either way with some people becoming more careful about hiding their identity and not getting help. And I think that for other people, it might help them to be able to say, you know, maybe I should, maybe this is the first wake up call of maybe there is something that's wrong, or at least I'm cared enough about that someone would reach out to me. So I, I think that I have mixed feelings about that. And I think that I'd have to really think about it um, more. I like that they're trying to do anything. I think that that's nice, but I don't know how much it will cause lasting change for people that are dealing with really difficult issues. I mean, it's almost the anti-Twitter, right? I mean, Twitter just completely doesn't care. And, you know, when I look at the paradigms of Instagram, I am um, often struck by how carefully it's been created to, you know, encourage more positive interaction. And I'm with you, Georgia. I'm not sold on this. And I also think there's a huge tendency in tech for... You know, people here to believe that like social issues are a technological fix and like getting reporting and like bots to do this. It's the most Silicon Valley thing mm-hmm. I've ever yeah. heard. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I've spent probably like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours like working a suicide hotline. And, you know, when you talk to people, and you're really trying to talk them down from suicide, like trying to get them to go get help. I just can't imagine that being anything, any bot or information could do. Like you talk to people and they're, they're at the end of their rope, you know, like transgender hotlines. Like it is, it is 
really serious stuff. Like you're talking about people that are homeless. You're talking to people that are starving. You're talking to people who've just been thrown out on the street. And like you're talking about you know, just extreme kinds of abuse in ways people are just not even willing to think about. And, you know, you can't get that like human connection, that human voice that it's going to be okay you just can't do that online in the same way. So like a uh, but it just it doesn't work. So I, I I really agree with you, Georgia. I think it's it's a positive step and I'm glad it will help some people, but I also think it has this big downside. But I I think overall I I'm happy at the least to see a company that has a really big social media presence do something constructive with it because it really feels like among all the companies, like Instagram really is the least horrible <laughs> of the big ones, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing that I selfishly like to see just cause it gives me hope that there are things that we can be doing with all this data that we're collecting that aren't just figuring out how to get people to buy more things. And and I think that this may be kind of a, a a blunt object or an inartful first step, but I think that it's I think it's also good to at least acknowledge that they're doing something, even if it's not necessarily going to make a huge impact. I think even then, maybe this is like the first step in being able to utilize a lot of this data that they have to be able to. Uh, you know, come up with more sophisticated ways to be able to save more lives. You know what I mean? And and at least like this is something that I, I don't know if maybe it makes a difference if they're catching it early enough or they're inter they're they're throwing up this message early enough before it gets to the point where they're calling a suicide hotline. Right. Like, does that make a difference at all? Like if they're somebody's just kind of like starting to go down that road and you can kind of get just throw up this message ahead of time and say, look, somebody cares about you. Here are some things that you can do before it gets to that point. Does that make a difference that it's it, it's before that at all? Or you know what I I'm trying to say? It does make, yeah, I think it does make a difference. I think that, you know, people have told me stories where it was just someone, you know, just giving them a smile on the street. And they were like, you know, that, that made the difference between it. So it can be, um, you know, something is better than nothing. Um. To have it done in a way so that people don't feel um, ashamed or called out and it's done in a way that humanizes it. I, you know, I think that Bree's really right about the difference between bots and humans. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I hope that this helps people um, and, and doesn't make people feel like they have to hide from it. I think that we need to have more conversations about the best ways to do that, but I'm happy that they're they're giving it a crack to see if they can because there's a lot of people on Instagram in a lot of pain and so it's nice that there there's um, steps to move in the right direction. Uh, you know, I hadn't considered the the visibility thing that you you talked about, Georgia. The fact that this this can be a place where concerned friends can see that you know their friends or their loved ones are hurting and they can help them without 
having to, you know, for them to feel called out. And so, because it seems like there are people who feel comfortable sharing that part of themselves. And maybe overall, it becomes a negative thing because they are getting into groups where those groups kind of encourage those negative things. But, you know, at the same time, a friend might follow you on Instagram, and they see that you're hurting, and they have a personal conversation with you. And they wouldn't have known that if this, you know, if they had been, if the other person had been called out at some point by the the Instagram uh, service. So I think that that is is a very important implication and was one that I had not thought about. Um, I do want to note too, though, in, Instagram seems to be more uh, pushing the the first, uh, touting the first feature rather than the second one that I mentioned where it is all based in kind of uh, data mining and, and bot type stuff. The second one is where if you search for something, uh, then they will alert you. But the first one is based in, in humans um, because it's if I were to go on Instagram and I see my friend Pete uh, post something that looks that, that that worries me. I can then uh, tag that post, kind of like uh, on Twitter. If you see something that's abusive or harmful, and you click to to report it, this is that same thing. Except it doesn't it doesn't like tell Instagram. It's just a between the two people type thing. You kind of report or tag that post as this really concerned me, and I hope that my friend's okay. And then it will send you, hey, would you like to talk to a friend? Uh, and that's where you can get. Like, you know, the, the friend, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure because I haven't followed through with those steps, but it says message or call someone you trust or contact a helpline. And the last one is the get, get tips and support. So it does seem that, you know, they are kind of trying to uh, make this more about the human connection before it ever gets to just bot land where you're reading messages or reading uh, tips and stuff from, from the internet after a bot has flagged you for being, uh, so, you know, for, for your post being a concern. So I appreciate appreciate that this is as a concerned friend I can reach out and say this this worried me maybe you could send them some support uh and then they could talk to a friend or contact the helpline but again that doesn't stop what you said before which is that people might suddenly feel like they can't share that part of themselves and uh we're looking at less visibility overall so there are some uh real pluses and minuses here but uh overall I'm glad that Instagram is taking this step Let's uh, let's do questions now. Steve, do, are there some questions for us? Yes, there's a question from Micah Sargent. Why should I buy a Nintendo Switch? No, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? That's uh, my question. So oh. uh, so we have some questions. We actually got a few questions through the email, and you can uh, you can send us through email through the contact form on the website, or you can uh, Micah will give you all the different ways that you can send uh, questions to us. Um, but we did get a question from someone who wants to remain anonymous who says, uh, my coworkers talk a fair bit while they work, so I often have to tune them out to get work done, which is involves shutting my door, turning music on, choose close the chattiest, instant message channels, etc. I'm reluctant to do these things by default because these same hallway conversations sometimes have important information for my work. And it feels passive aggressive to shut my door when people start talking, but I can't productively write code while people are chatting about non-work topics. Our manager sent an email to the team saying there was too much off-topic conversation once and it calmed down for a while, but lately it's been getting chattier again. And lately they talk about politics and Trump in particular more and more often. It's not that I disagree with their opinions, I just am heartily sick of hearing about that person and his misogyny. And I get stressed that the topic has even been brought to mind again, even as I'm closing the door to my coworkers' conversation. Is there a healthier response that doesn't leave me stressed and uncomfortable with the way that I interact with my coworkers. 
Okay, I have so much to say about this. If you are trying to code, it is beyond fair to try to get people around you to respect your space. You know, writing code is not like writing an article. And I know because I do both of them. You know, you can pick up and put down writing an article. Like, you can definitely get in a flow with it. But programming is like you're trying to solve five problems in your head at once. And you're trying to think about, like, optimization and, like, number of steps. And it is extremely mentally taxing. So when someone uh, like stops by and they're being your, your, your slack or stop by your office or give you a call, it's like you spent a bunch of time building up a house of cards and they just knock it over. And drawing boundaries around that for yourself and what you can tolerate, don't feel shy about that at all. Like, this is just your profession. Like, if you were a surgeon, would you, like, feel terrible about asking the dude next to you to stop breakdancing? Like, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just the profession and how it works. So you can certainly, like, I'm guessing the people that are doing this are not programmers or they wouldn't be such jerk stores. <laughs> so, like, maybe just have, like, I'd put a sign on my door or I might like at a meeting at some point just say like look it's not personal I want to have conversations with everybody here I want to be social I value your input but for me on my job I just I can't do this and it's a productivity issue so it's not personal and like don't be shy about setting those boundaries like you're setting boundaries so you can succeed at your career and get your work done that is beyond reasonable don't feel guilty. <laughs> like I've had projects where I needed to get a piece of code, a complicated code done on a deadline. And I yeah. just picked myself up and went somewhere to we yeah. we, we, we literally call it hiding. And mm-hmm. we I'll go down to the cafeteria or I will book like a conference room or I'll just tell my boss I'm working from home that day because I need to get this thing done and I need to have no distractions. Because there was there's I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but there was that old article about maker time versus manager time about how much like um, just having to stop for a meeting will throw off your your train of thought and then you have to spend that much time getting back into that groove to be able to even start back up where you were if you're getting constantly distracted and this is coming from someone who has add by the way so i know i know from distraction um if you're constantly getting distracted there's no way you're going to get your work done and that's and honestly if if those hallway conversations are important somebody will call a meeting with you or somebody will email you or somebody will call you it will get to you Uh, most of the time sometimes you do pick up things from those conversations that you wouldn't have heard otherwise but i i there's kind of a limit to how much you can stress that i think and ultimately your job is to get the code done i'm giving you brianna Wu authorization to get a nerf like assault rifle (laughs) and keep it in your office if they start typing like just put it right there in your desk and you can just keep typing and thinking and just pull the trigger and just fire like 80 bullets at them. Like, I'm giving you Brianna Wu authorization to do that. Legally like, binding. Just, you got it. You got to do something. Like, Steve, you're so right about hiding. How many times have you not just muted your phone or hit the rocker switch, have completely shut your phone off because people will not stop bothering you? Like, I do that daily, right? Yeah. I mean, I've had times where I have. A, if it's a, something critical, I will turn on Rage Against the Machine at ear splitting levels. And yeah. even if I see somebody trying to get to my attention, I will see them out of the corner of my eye and actively ignore them if I need to get yeah. my work done. 
I have gone to a hotel. I have rented a hotel near my office to go get stuff done on a deadline when people won't stop talking. So it, it bothers, like, I'm concerned for you that you are scared about setting this boundary. Like, like yeah, don't. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't think that's anything you need to feel guilty about at all. I think that ultimately you're, that's your job. And you if you need that environment to be able to get your work done, that's what you need. And, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately you're you're trying to get your work done and they're having a hallway conversation that may or may not have anything to do with work. You know, sometimes asking people to shut the hell up doesn't really go over very well. <laughs> but but there are, there are a, you know, a bunch of things that you can do to kind of remove yourself from the situation and create a working environment that is conducive to you being able to get your work done without getting distracted. And I think you're entitled to that. So yeah. I, I want to save uh, Georgia Dow for the for the save the best for last because I have a feeling that she's about to just lay it all down and and everything that I'm about <laughs> to say is like what's wrong with you, Micah? But I just I, I have to give some some uh, empathy points here for our anonymous friend, and the reason I say that is because. I think I understand this, uh, this feeling, uh, simply because, so a while back, I remember I was tweeting about Uber and how it'd be super cool if there was either like a check mark in Uber or a whole nother service, uh, a ride sharing service in general, where it was just, there was a social contract in place that you didn't have to talk to the driver and the driver didn't have to talk to you. And people were like, just don't talk to the driver. And it's not that, it's not enough to just for me to say, Hey, I don't, I don't want to talk. I need to do this thing or for me to put in headphones or what have you. Those things don't work for me because all I can do the whole time is just sit in this guilt. I just feel so guilty. I feel like a terrible person. I feel awful for deciding that I don't want to talk to the driver. And so if there was like a service that allowed me to, it's just from the get go, there's no uh, needing to talk about it or anything. Just it's a, it's known that I am a person who doesn't, like to uh, talk to the driver whenever I'm in the vehicle. So I can understand where, you know, you might have this, this anxiety or this, this guilt about, you know, not wanting to talk to your coworkers, even though they're right there. And, you know, you, you mentioned being stressed and uncomfortable. And I've, I've felt that in, in situations like I just talked about. But then also, even if I'm in a room with a bunch of people, whenever I used to, when I didn't work from home, when I worked in an office, and I had three or four people around me, I always felt bad about putting on my headphones and trying to focus. And it wasn't that anyone else was trying to make me feel or make me feel bad about it. It's just this internal guilt that I have. Like, I feel like I should make myself available to them. And I don't want them to think that I don't think what they're saying is important and that I don't want to talk about it. But again, that's probably my own problem. And maybe Georgia can fix me. Okay. Well, I I don't think that you're alone, Micah. And I, I, um, you know, Brian, Steve's advice is, uh, you know, wonderful. You shouldn't feel bad. And, and you do have a right. We're, we're not good at multitasking. We're just not good at multitasking and doing things that are very difficult. We need most of our brain to be able to do that. And so we can't have a conversation and do most things at the same time. We really are, um, single parsing devices. So, you know, don't feel bad to that. I think though that you're right, Mike, I think that you're not alone in being, there's a lot of people that would feel bad in doing that and worry about what their colleagues might say or, you know, not say, but think. And sometimes that will stop someone from doing what they need to do. And so there are some other ways that you can go about it. And yes, um, you should practice giving yourself better boundaries in small, little, tiny ways so that you don't feel so guilty about it because you shouldn't feel guilty if you didn't actually do anything wrong. 
But that being said, there are some ways that you can make this a little bit easier. So one of the things that you could do if you feel comfortable enough with your colleagues is to say, sorry, guys, don't mean to be rude. I'm just going to be closing the door for a second because I have whatever it might be that I have to do, or I have to do this important call. And then you can just keep the door unlocked. Like you can even like just say, I have to make an important call, not make an important call, just do your coding. (laughs) Um, And so there's other ways that you can go about it. You can also use earphones, but that's also, um, some people will find that that's rude, but you could just say, listen, just listening to some music. Let me know if you need anything and deal with that. I think that the easiest way through it is by letting people know. I have a really hard time with this. Sorry, guys, in case you think I'm rude, I'm, I'm don't mean to be, I just need to be able to do this. If that would make you feel less guilty to that. I think that for some people, even that is too much. I just, um, came back from Coco Love Conference, and it was really cool. They had these buttons on the table. Um, it was an amazing conference, by the way. A lot of fun. Very, very amazing people that we got to meet. But they had these buttons on the table, and the buttons had a little cat. And so the cat was either uh, hiding behind a wall, hiding behind the wall and saying hi, uh, sorry, no, or or like jumping up over the table. And that was to tell your level of comfort with human interaction. And I went, and so you wore that on your little tag so that um, people would understand, you know, hi, I'm super extroverted, you know, come up to me any point in time, don't mind talking a thousand times a day, I'm good for that. Or, you know, if it was the one that the cat's just kind of looking behind the wall and just staring at you would be like, I'm relatively introverted or I lean towards having social anxiety. If I'm sitting off on my own, you know, come at me slowly Um, don't feel bad if I'm not really chatty, that's just my nature, or if you're kind of in the middle. I loved this idea. That's very similar, I think, to your Uber idea of like, listen, I want to chat, don't want to chat, right? And it, it was really nice. One is because people, it was okay to be introverted. We live, Western society is a highly, um, extroverted pro society, which makes people that are leaning towards introverted or dealing with social anxiety feel a little bit more awkward. Whereas Eastern societies, it's more introversion is a better way to be versus extroversion. That's starting to change, but it was really nice. It was wonderful. It got people talking about it. And it's just something that I think that even if you had little signs on, you know, you know, warning coding in progress, you know, yeah. <laughs> little sign you could just yeah. put up that was cute just to let people know that right now might not be the best of times to be able to chat. And then I, I liked also, Steve, your idea of being able to just kind of escape somewhere. I think that's the same thing for having like, you know, when you go out to eat, you shouldn't eat in a lunchroom that's with workers. You're going to end up having to do work or talk about work, you know, go off onto your own and have that space. I think that's another way that you could be able to do it. I don't know if everyone would be able to have that. But even if you told your boss, just in case they're worried, listen, I'm going to be doing some coding. I, I really, you know, need to deal with this and I'm going to, you know, head off for a little while. Um, there's also white noise. You can get some machines that play white noise. It kind of dampens the same area of speech. Some people find them annoying. So that's the only thing is that you'd want to have it in your office so that you can hear it and not that everyone else can hear it. And so uh, don't feel guilty. Um, you know, talk to people so that they understand so that it's not misconstrued and find out whichever way you can to be able to get your coding done. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to that point, I know that this is not about people coming up and, and a, you know, asking you questions, which is a completely different thing. That's also incredibly distracting. But I've give, and it took me a long time to get there, but I've given myself permission to say I'm in the middle of this and I need to finish it. And I will be happy to talk about this, either send me an email or set up a meeting. And that way you're you're protecting your time, which is important. And it's also, you know, shows that you care about what they're trying to say, but you're not going to be able to give them the attention that that you need to give them right then. And if you do, then both what they're trying to get and what you're trying to get done are both going to suffer. So but right. it took me it took, it's a really hard thing to get the confidence to be able to do. It took me a long time to be able to get to the point where I need it. Pretty much getting diagnosed with ADD was the only thing that got me to the point where I just decided that I needed to do that, like out of I'm, self-defense. I'm wondering if it's a skill that I will master with like with more age. Uh, and that's what, like for, at least for me, I haven't. I just I just feel so even even saying like, hey, I need to take this time to do this thing. Even that, I, I will do that, but it still is, it's tough for me to do because I feel, I just feel bad that I'm telling someone that what, you know, that they're not worth my time. Even, even though like the logic is, is not there and the logic is there for needing to take the time, but the emotions get in the way. And it like, mm-hmm. the only reason why I'm talking about me in this sense is because I want to, I want to compare my experience with theirs, I think that they're similar in in that way from what the person's talking about. Um, I'll just tell you, Micah, just get an, get an enthusiastic intern. That'll train you real fast. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what worked for me. So the next question is from Mike, who and, and it was a very long question, but the, the, the gist of it is that he's um, he's in computer science and he's studying AI and data modeling and simulation. And he's not sure if computer science is really what he wants to pursue because he started taking up drawing illustration, he's looking at pursuing a a job in that, but he's torn because everything that he's done up to this point has been about computer science. So he's got two really, really uh, general questions. So one, um, what advice would we have for him being stuck between uh, two very non-related fields and he also says that he feels that he may have uh, dysthymia. Is that how you pronounce it? It's mm-hmm. um, persistent depressive disorder. And he says, I've gone to a therapist in the past, but I stopped going after I felt it wasn't getting me anywhere. I also feel as if I'm too busy to deal with it and it's not that bad. But it's times like this where I'm lonely at night and it really bothers me. And here I am writing to you guys at 2 a.m. So um, so what what does he do about that and the resulting poor time management? And he says, even if it isn't severe enough to be clinically diagnosed, I feel like it distresses me enough that I need to get some sort of help. Well, I have a lot of thoughts about the the first part of that question. Um, you know, I worked as a freelance illustrator for many, many years. Um, you know, I'm also I also do a lot of computer stuff. So my thought on it is this: like you're you're portraying them as two diametrically opposed fields. They're not. Um, they're not even close. I mean, the video game field, what I love about it is because art is so close to computer science. Um, yeah, I was working the other day with some VR stuff and like working on like writing a shader to do something that's never been done before in VR. And it took a lot of my vector graphics knowledge to do that. So the two are really interrelated. Um, so if you you have a passion for that, I I don't see where you can't do both of them at the same time. I will always always think it's really useful to 
give people a little bit of a reality check with what doing art for a living is like. Because, like, I understand, like, the the groove of sitting down and drawing and you're in your zone. It just makes you feel joyous. Like, there's a a reason, like, they did a study very recently that showed uh, just sitting down. And even if you're not a good artist, drawing for 20 minutes can do a ton to improve your mood. So I really understand the joy of that. But if you want to make a living as an illustrator, let's just look at what this is going to involve. You're going to have to work for a company. Um, you know, even if you're freelance, what you have to do to make a living doing freelance art is constantly be looking for clients. You're going to have to, um, you know, develop a wide array of, of skills, uh, of drawing skills. One of my best clients when I was doing freelance illustration work was a, a mega church in the state I was living in where the pastor there uh, was famously anti-gay. And I have drawn so many <laughs> pictures of that, 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 you know, place trying to like just make a living. Um, you know, like you'll have to deal with clients that you find deplorable and you'll have to do stuff that you don't care about. That's not to say there's not joy in it. Like professional illustration is a real skill. Um, you know, I think there's a, a craftsmanship with um, doing graphic design that doesn't really exist in um, in fine art because there's more of a, a commercial application for it and there are pipeline issues. So I just want to be really realistic with what you, like, if you're not feeling happy inside, you know, I don't want to, like, sell you this idea of being an illustrator that it's, you know, a panacea because it's not. It's a very, very, very hard field. Um, computer science is also a very hard field. Uh, I think that has the benefit that you're not going to be competing for jobs with literally everyone on earth. <laughs> so, you know, you're going to make a little bit more money at the same time. So, you know, I, I suspect Georgia is going to encourage you to talk to a therapist. So maybe that would be a way to go. Georgia? Well, I think that that you're right, though, Brie. Like, sometimes also finding the thing that really you're passionate about could, like, not knowing where you are and where you're going in the world can cause um, feelings of being depressed and loss in motivation. So that could also be an answer to the feelings of depression that you're dealing with as well. Um, yeah, definitely seeing a therapist and dealing with that is one way that you can go about it, but also being proactive and doing the opposite of what the depression is telling you. So going outside, um, talking to people that make you feel uplifted, exercising, doing something that's not um, really difficult and creative, like small little things like puzzles, unless it's like a thousand piece puzzle and stresses you, don't do that, Um, or coloring or creating something. These are things that can help increase motivation and dopamine and serotonin. The next part would be just working through your own thoughts to where you are. Once you feel like you're on the right path in your own existence, odds are that this is going to go away. And you said that this might not be diagnosed yet and maybe this is too soon. You know what? If you're not feeling good with yourself, it is not too soon. Deal with it. You deserve to be happy and it would be better for you to deal with this now, especially when the winter months come through and we deal with a lot of seasonal affective disorder. It's very, very common. And so it's nice, especially now that you deal with this instead of waiting till it gets worse. It is like saying, I'm going to wait until um, the water in the well comes up to my shoulders before I start deciding on how I'm going to climb out. You know what? No, climb out now. 
now is always the best time to help you feel a little bit better. So um, keep up with that. Journaling is also a lovely way to deal with it. But, you know, in the end, it's about, you know, people doing things that make you feel happiness and finding your path. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll, the only thing I'll add on the, the specifically on the computer science side is that it's a hard degree and it's it gets really grindy around the second year. It does. And that which is why a lot of people just give up on it. So it's normal for you to be kind of frustrated and be questioning whether you should be wanting to do it, because a lot of those classes, they make really hard to make people question whether they want to keep doing it or not. You're, the benefits of you having a computer science degree, if you have the aptitude for it, and he says that he's at one of the top five computer science universities in the world. So you're obviously good at it. Even if you don't love it, there's a there's an opportunity once you graduate to to do the stuff that you know you need to do to make money and then be able to pursue the drawing you'll have more time for as a hobby you know once you've graduated too when you're not doing those types of projects i mean i certainly didn't love programming for order entry systems when i first got out of college <laughs> but you know that's what i did and then i wrote about video games when i got home and that was what i did to kind of square those two things so okay i, I just wanted to add something on that really quick like but you know i feel like i said you're reminding me steve like i said a lot of negative things about illustration let's be straight about what programming is. It's yeah. feeling stupid for yeah. most of the day. It sure is. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. it, it's like you're sitting there and either you're dealing with the new API you don't know or you know some part of it you're not familiar with or some bug, and it is extremely frustrating. Um, like you, you spend most of your day feeling dumb, and yeah. it can be really demoralizing. Now, when you're on a roll and you got that first little bit going, and then you can see like the the next way to refine it and make your code more efficient, or like writing in a way that's not going to cause problems for someone else down the line, that is magic hour, and that's awesome. But you know, even just having you're you're really right, Steve. That the the statistics part of it, it's it's tough to get through. Um, but that doesn't mean like those classes are not what your career would be like. Yeah, and you can definitely. always go into. I mean, just knowing computer science and being able to talk about it is going to give you so many more career paths than the liberal art majors that are you know graduating in droves from your school. Like it's. It's, you know, you have management potential, investment, like everything I am able to do in my career is mostly because of that background. So um, I I think you're right, Steve. I would really encourage you to really, (laughs) really make sure, like, before changing. Yeah. Like, I I know I'm biased because, like, I'm... I feel I've I've felt the benefits of having a computer science degree and like mm-hmm. I would really tell somebody that if they've put that much work through, you know, to really try to stick it out. Obviously, if it's something that you realize that you hate, then you need to you need to course correct. But I think that especially because you you're you suspect that you're dealing with with dysthymia also, you probably want to make sure that you, that that's not tainting your judgment either and that's not affecting how you feel about it because it it sounds like that might be it and you know having a lot of hard coursework that's making you feel stupid all the time because that's what that's what programming is is feeling stupid until you feel smart for five seconds and then going over and doing it all over again that could that could definitely affect your mood too it certainly did for me when i was going when i was going through that and and when it's three o'clock in the morning and you're fighting with a bug that you can't figure out because the things do the next day it doesn't feel good, but there's a lot of stuff that there, it, there's benefits for going through that. And it may make you a stronger person having gone through that too. Just saying, but 
I have nothing to add. I think everybody else covered it quite well, and I would just be repeating others if I spoke. Okay. So we have one more voicemail, and this one is very short, but I figure we'll probably have some things to say about it. So, Hey, guys. I, w- I was wondering if you guys could recommend any home automation stuff, preferably that works with HomeKit. Bye. Thanks. Uh, who wants to go first? I've got plenty to say. I can wait. Uh, I'll go really quick. Um, so I have Schlage's, um locks for the doors. That's it's amazing. It's so sweet. Is it? Oh, oh it's so good. I want that. It's so oh. good. You can talk to Siri and say, "Open my front door." You can lock it. You can check if your door was locked. Um, it's really very sweet. Um, it's loud. That's the only thing. And if the light hits it, it's hard to see the numbers. But it's really sweet. It's automated. It's it's just great calling like being at a restaurant and being like, did we lock the front door and asking and then locking the front door if it was not locked from wherever you are or letting a friend into your house. It's really pretty sick. Um, <sighs> the next one would be an eye switch. That's like it's just a, a plug. So you can make anything that is not smart, smart and work with HomeKit. And so then you can say, you know, you don't have to have hue lights to say, um, turn off these lights, turn these down to 50 percent. So it, it allows you to, to to be able to control the device, many different devices that you have in your house. Um, so we use it on our Hues as well. So we have that we, and we have our Hues, which is also wonderful. I love having the Hue lights. Um, a lot of fun, works really well. So that'll be my, my quick little foray into those. Uh, the iDevice switch cannot turn down lights that are not already able to be dimmed. But anyways, I'm just letting you know, but... Uh, I'll go. I'll go super quickly. Nest stuff counts as home automation, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I've got Nest. I freaking love it. I love it. We have a. So someone stole my Hillary Clinton sign from front of the house. Oh. We got that stuff on video. It's amazing. Like we've got. We have a complete surveillance state of our house, and mm-hmm. you know, like when the dogs are locked up in the kitchen and I'm on trips, I love that I can just hit my home and dial in and talk to the dogs yeah. and like see little rocket who's the best dog ever um in the nest uh the nest i love her i love her so much it's ridiculous even my nest thermostat it's amazing like i can be laying in bed and feeling lazy and like i don't have to get up to make it uh, the the house hotter like i just do it from my phone so um yeah i almost hate that it's over on this google um ecosystem because this can be hard to move over to anything on the ios ecosystem because the Nest stuff works just so amazingly well. But um, yeah, I'm all in on that. And Georgia, if you say that lock thing is good, I'm all in on that too. So. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Not having to even have a key. It's a great feeling. Yes, uh, I will go quickly as well. I do have quite a few different products and I will just uh, touch on them quickly. So first thing I ever got were, were Hue lights. Uh, I have at this point, I think like six Hue lights in, in my house. Um, I have two in my bedroom and uh, three in my living room. And I have a few of uh, Hue's accessories. So I have the Hue motion sensor and the Hue remote, which is super cool because uh, for the motion sensor, for example, I don't have to worry about the, the switch 
switch on the wall or if I'm holding things. Uh, when, as soon as the motion sensor sees me, it turns on the light so I can see my way upstairs. So that's also handy if I like have to use the restroom in the middle of the night. I can walk out and the light will come on, but it comes on really soft and I can go use the restroom. Uh, so I love I love all of my different Hue lights. Uh, the motion sensor is the most new thing that Hue has released, and I'm actually uh, reviewing that. And so far, so good. It's got a bunch of different features that you can uh, play around with, like timing and stuff. I've also got two or three iDevice switches, which the thing I like about the iDevice switches as opposed to some of the other ones is the iDevice switches actually have an LED panel on the front of them so they oh, can yes, serve yes, as... Yes as night lights and they are multicolored which is super awesome so because nice. you can make like pink blue green orange red and pro tip red uh is the it, it, it the light beams for red travel the least and the light beams for blue travel the farthest so if you are wanting to have like a nice night light that doesn't blind anyone whenever they're that, sorry that doesn't uh, bother anyone when they're trying to sleep then you would want to want it to set it to red and if you want the light to kind of spread out and go the farthest you set it to blue pretty cool uh, I have an August smart lock as opposed to the Schlage or Schlage or however it was <laughs> yeah. pronounced. It's pronounced Farfignugan. There we go. I have <laughs> that instead of the Farfignugan. And so the August smart lock, uh, it does the same thing. It's uh, a way to unlock and lock your doors. You can ask Siri, yo, is my door locked or not? And I love that too because as I come home and as I get out of my car, but not a minute before, Steve, so calm down, um, it, it combines GPS with actual movement of your device. So it uses the accelerometer. And so it can tell that you're walking toward the door and it starts to unlock the door for you. And so that way, when I come home from, from getting groceries, or out doing whatever, and same thing for Shane. The door is already automatically unlocked for us. And really, in, yeah, yeah, but, which is really nice. Because, but the only thing is, if someone steals your phone, if someone were to steal my phone, then yes, they would have access to my because house. because for the for this, I thought, and I might be wrong about this, but I thought that that Apple had made every single lock that works in HomeKit be that you cannot it's can't be by detection you have to so if i want to do that automatic made automatically i can tell siri but then i have to put my fingerprint in so it knows it's me Yes, uh, this is oh, the only way that I can make that happen is not through the home app. It's through August's own app. So okay. it can work that way. It just can't work through the home app. Uh, okay, yes, fair. it does not let you do it, which is, is I think it's a mostly smart thing. Because, uh, yeah, if someone were to steal my phone, they would have access to my house. I have never had Change my phone that stolen. Now so before the show goes live. Maybe, yes, you're right. I need to. Uh, okay. And then the other thing, <laughs> everyone's worried, and especially Steve. His I, I'm screaming internally right racing. now. Go on. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, I have the Ecobee thermostat, which I know Georgia loves. I love um, it. And so not only does it have the, the main thermostat, which you can control via, uh, via your home app or via Siri, and they just updated it so it can do the automatic mode, which is really nice, which just keeps your house in between two different temperatures. But it also has sensors that you can get. It comes with one, and you can get more than that if you'd like to. And these little sensors you can put up in different parts of your house, and they can kind of change how the temperature works in your house. So if it senses movement in your bedroom, which is where I have my other sensor, then it knows... 
that like, hey, he's in his bedroom. And so, you know, after a certain hour, and if you sense motion in my bedroom, I want you to set the temperature to blah, blah, blah. You can set up all that different stuff. And the cool thing is it's also checking your temperature the whole time and it can take an average of the two. So yeah, a lot of times like people's houses, they might be 74 degrees downstairs, but because heat rises, it's actually like 87 in your bedroom. So it takes those two temperatures at the main one and then at the one upstairs and it adds them together and averages them. And so it'll actually cool your house even more. So you'll find that like maybe the downstairs is cooled to 70, but at least the bedroom's not 86 degrees. So I love all of the different products that I have and I try to only get products that are HomeKit compatible. I do have a Nest Cam and Brie, I too love uh, calling into the house and being messing around with the dogs. It's so much fun. Uh, Unfortunately, the Nest Cam isn't HomeKit compatible. Oh man, I really wish it was. And I'm hoping that uh, the Canary Pro that's supposed to be coming out will have some really cool uh, HomeKit tie-ins and I might be swapping out the Nest Cam for that. So yeah, there are so many products out there. And if I can just push really quick, uh, there is a page, there's an article on iMore. You can literally just search uh, HomeKit products iMore and it's got every single HomeKit compatible product that exists. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. That way, friend who asked, you can find out what all the products are. And that, that list is constantly updated. So you'll know what they are. But I love, I love, love HomeKit, love Home, mm-hmm. and so glad to have this home automation stuff. I, I just feel like Grandpa Simpson every time we talk about this stuff. I just like <laughs> my day, we got two, our cars got two rods to the hog's head, and that's the way we liked it. Like I like I like flipping switches and pressing buttons and know that things are actually going to work without me having to debug things on my days off. So that's that's all. But in addition to all of the horrible, terrible security concerns that I won't go into because this is a happy show. Joy, joy, Steve, just try to feel joy. (laughs) Let me tell you something like I I you know, people make fun of like emotional companion animals, but like um, you know, like I I do like when I'm trying to get over trauma. Like I think about rocket soft fur. So just Aww. just think about a dog, Steve. Think about that, that that's dog. That's not going to have the same effect. Yes, just think about the dog face I'm, I'm, of the Nintendo Switch in your house, staring at you. I'm just I'm, I'm picturing my bucket of sloths, and I feel better. Okay. Oh yeah, the bucket okay. of sloths. I'm going to okay. start sending that to you every day. <laughs> I, I, I that should be that should be it. Bucket of slots is a service. That's your new that's your new business that's idea. That's my thing. I, I'm just happy that I finally gotten you all to accept robot dogs into your lives with the switch. So I'm that's my <laughs> that's my long con. So I'm happy that I've uh-uh. I've succeeded in that. Not Georgia and Micah yet. You've still got work to do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Give us a couple months. We should wrap things up. Yes, we, we should. should. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show and leave awesome questions like we just heard, you can call us at 508-418-3532. That's 508-418-3532. You can also tweet us at underscore disruption FM with a hashtag disrupt me, and that will go to the right pipes and places for us to see those questions. If you'd rather keep things, you know, uh, personal then go ahead and send us a direct message. Our DMs are open. Uh, if you wouldn't mind letting us know whether you would like to uh, like us to share your name, then please do that. Uh, we will default to keeping you anonymous. Please go rate and review the show on iTunes. Let me uh, note here, you don't have to type a gigantic review if you don't want to. We love that, but 
If you're, you know, if you'd rather not type out a whole long thing, cool thing is you can just give us stars on iTunes and uh, Apple will let you do that. So go ahead and give us five stars, not four stars, as Bree has noted. It's either one or five, nothing in between. Just and, five. Uh, it's actually just, just five. There are just no five. stars. There's just yeah. five. There are five stars. Uh, so please go check that out. Thanks so much to our lovely network relay. If you're looking for me on the internets, you can find me at most everything at Micah Sargent and Steve. Where can people find you? And you can find me uh, gathering my bucket of sloths, and also you can find me on Twitter at Wicked Good. <laughs> Buckets of sloths. And Bree, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on the very friendly uh, Twitter <laughs> account known as Space Cat Gal, and you can also see me trying desperately to make Steve feel happiness again. Oh, <laughs> I was good this week. Soon giving a talk <laughs> at Google, I hear. Uh, yeah, I'm doing that and speaking at a university in Canada, uh, not next week, but the week after that. So awesome. I'm excited about that. Uh, so cool. I, I really, Georgia, I gave you so much smack about Canada, and I really mean this. It was the last trip I took there. It was some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life, Aww. and it was just a super positive experience. I've not told one Canadian joke ever since then. So. <laughs> you see, I we're seriously. so nice, we don't even mind. You can still tell the jokes. No, no, no. And every one of them, they come in. This is even before the Trump campaign went off the rails. And they go, please, please, please do whatever you can to stop America from voting for Donald Trump. We're really concerned. I had at least 50 conversations like that. That's true. true. And, And Georgia, if people are looking for you, where can they find you? So if you uh, want to ask any therapeutic questions and you're too shy to ask them on the show and want to ask me directly, you can find me. It's Georgia at imore.com on uh, email. And uh, also, if you're dealing with anxiety and depression and would like to check out our video series, you can check out anxiety-videos.com. Fantastic. Well, all that's left is for Steve to say that thing he says every time. So take it away, Steve. Go. We're done. Go. Game over. Go. Your your podcast is another castle. Something like that. Go. Bye. <laughs> Switch uh... it up.